Have you ever had something in front of you so big that you wondered if you would ever be able to overcome it? Discouragement began to set in, and then you began to feel fear faced with the situation that you're in. There are all kinds of things like that that happen in our lives, in our world today. That's a similar road that the Israelites found themselves on. You see, they were faced with the entire Philistine army and their giant street fighter. And fear was setting in, and they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do until they were reminded by a very unlikely person. Only a boy named David. Today we see that the scarlet thread is alive and well in 1025 B.C. So here we are this morning in story number six, event number six in the course of the history of life, really. And today we're talking about one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. We are looking at one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. And I don't know if it's favorite just because we share the same name. Um, I'm not sure if that's why. I remember studying First and Second Samuel in seminary and, and how enthralled I was with, with just the storyline and, and how God was working in and among the people, um, which, which is how he's been working all along. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that all throughout life, whether, whether it's when the Israelites found themselves in slavery for over 400 years, or if it's the meantime between uh, the Exodus and when the nation of Israel entered the promised land. God is working. He's working in and among his people, and he continues to work in and among us today. So as we look at where our timeline is today, uh, I want to just give us a couple highlights between when they entered the promised land in 1406. In 1162, we see Gideon becomes a judge. And there are several, there are many uh, judges in the book of Judges men and women who were called, who were anointed by God to lead the people at certain points of time in their history. Gideon was leading the people against an army that was trying to come against Israel. And if you remember anything about the story, you know that he started out with tens of thousands of troops. And God said, "Uh uh-uh, Gideon, that's not the way we're going to do this. And he made Gideon whittle the number of troops that he had all the way down to 300 So he is to fight this incredible army with 300 men. And the reason, God says, that I want you to do this with the 300 is because if you do it with the tens of thousands, then Israel will take credit. And I want you to know that it's going to be, this victory is going to be delivered by me. I'm the one that's going to do this. And only if you have just a few will they know that that's true. And we see that Gideon does, in fact, do that. In 1075 B.C., we see that Samson uh, takes his turn as a judge. There were some successes and there were some failures in the life of Samson, weren't there? Uh, second look this last week. I hope you took a look at that. We, Pastor Ty took us through uh, times in all of these Bible characters that we have been looking at where they were successful and they failed. They succeeded and they failed. They were faithful and then they tripped and fell on their face. That's us. Very similar. Very similar to us. In 1040 B.C., 
we have David being born. Only a boy named David. And then in 1025, 15 years later, David comes before Goliath, and that's what we are going to be talking about today. A couple uh, real, I don't want to say real life, a couple uh, secular history events that occurred alongside of our biblical timeline right here is in 1183 B.C., Troy is destroyed uh, during the Trojan War. In uh, 1000 B.C., just a little bit uh, after Goliath is slain, over here in North America, California, the California Indians are building wood reed houses. So 25 years after David slays Goliath, the, the Indians in California are building houses. Humanity is all across the globe. And then also in 1000 BC, the Chinese are beginning to utilize root multiplication, geometry, and proportions. This was probably, for all of those who love math, the beginning of story problems. Right here. That's where it all started, 1000 B.C. So, that's where we are in, in history. In the literal years of history. So let's start with the situation as it comes to us uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 17, if you haven't turned there already. Uh, this passage will not be on the screen, so if you didn't bring a Bible, um, grab one from underneath the chair in front of you and uh, get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between... Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So it, it looks kind of like what I would imagine the colonial battles to be like. You've got this big line of Philistines on one side and you've got this big line of Israelites on the other side and there's this small valley in between them and they're kind of facing off. And then in verse 8 it says this, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. In David's life, in the life of Israel, all along, there has been opposition to them. There, is, there will always be opposition to God. There will always be opposition to God's people. That's what we are seeing here this morning. The Philistines are in opposition, not just to Israel's army, but they are defying Israel's God. Jesus himself faced opposition when he walked this earth. Some of that opposition, unfortunately, we know came from inside the religious sect. Some of that as well came from the outside. So the Philistines and Goliath present here a literal, it happened in time, it happened in 1025 B.C., historic event that, pre, that, that presents something to us that's very similar to what we experience in life today. And we're going to be looking at that. 
So number one in your notes this morning is, uh, we see an affront to faith. An affront to faith. And as it turns out, the faith and commitment of Saul and his army are put to the test right here in this valley. The Philistines are thumbing their noses at God and God's people. Now, this is a very real threat. Um, This is not an Aesop's fable. This is not just a story to make a point. These are literal historic events. And if you look at at verse number four there, you'll see that it is a big threat. For Goliath's height was six cubits and a span. That's nine feet, nine inches tall. Uh, He was a very, very large man. Verse five and six, to go on to say how big he was. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. All of his, all of his um, armor and everything that he had, he was carrying totaled around 250 pounds. Now, I can't lift 250 pounds, I don't think, by myself, let alone wear it. Uh, Goliath is wearing this. Okay? This is just what he has on in armor. And then verse 7 describes uh, his spear. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. Now, a weaver's rod would have weighed itself between 16 and 17 pounds and would have been between 10 and 12 feet long. And then you put on that uh, the head of the spear, which weighed 15 pounds. So you have a spear that's an inch and a half to two inches in diameter, weighing um, 16 to 17 pounds. Add another 15 pounds onto that. That's his weapon. He's a formidable foe. And then to top it all off, we look at verse 33 and it says this. He has been a warrior from his youth. From when he was a wee six feet tall, he has been a warrior. He has experienced. He knows what he's doing. He's probably killed many men in his life. That's what Saul and the army are facing. And these Philistines are standing in direct opposition to God. Verse 10, he says right there, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. They're cowering. They don't know what to do. They're discouraged. They're afraid. They've taken their focus off of God and they have put their focus on themselves. They have put their focus on their weaknesses. They're not strong enough to overpower this nine-foot, nine-inch man themselves and they simply don't know what to do. This happens often to the nation of Israel, doesn't it? You know, God miraculously, supernaturally frees them out of Egypt. For over 400 years, they're in slavery. God frees them. Okay? They're supernaturally protected during the Passover by the blood of the Lamb. And then, after a few days, likely, Pharaoh's army is coming after them, and they begin to cry out to Moses. And what do they say? This is stupid, Moses. You've brought us out here to have us die. We'd be better off in slavery. Oh, how soon they forget how powerful a God it is that they, that they serve. What does God do? He parts the Red Sea. And then they come to the doorstep of the promised land, which God has told them He will give to them. And what do they do? 
They balk. They can't do it. They're too chicken. They feel too weak. Their focus is what? On themselves. Their focus is in the wrong place. And what happens? God punishes them. He says, all right, you can't trust me. Let's go wander around in the desert for 40 years. See, I don't think he said, we'll see how you like that, but it was punishment. Okay? God said, this is the consequence of your unbelief, of your not trusting me. And as they're wandering around, they're thirsty and they cry out and they complain they're going to die and then they're hungry. What does God do? Miraculously, every time, He provides for what they need. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever, have you ever complained to God about something that's happening in your life? Uh, maybe you're experiencing something like that right now. Maybe there's a huge obstacle in your way. Uh, there's, this, there's this huge amount of pain or suffering that you are experiencing right now in your life. And, and you wonder, God, are you really there? Can I trust you? Sometimes our complaints come out as blame. We blame God for the situation that we're in. You know, even our insurance companies do that. You know, We'll cover all of this, but we won't cover acts of God, right? Or we just don't know what to do. And we begin to worry, and we begin to feel anxiety, and we begin to be afraid, and we cower in the corner, and we sort of lower our hands, and we don't know what to do. That's where Saul and the army of Israel is right here. And they're there for a period of time. Verse 16 Right there says, For forty days the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. I wonder if at day thirty nine, day forty, what what's going along in their heads? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Saul and the Israelite army are afraid they they don't know what to do. And, and right at this point, the reputation of God is kind of on the line. Because everybody in the area, they know that this is God's chosen people. He's delivered them the promised land. He, he's conquered places like Jericho, the word I'm sure got around in that time. Everyone knows the incredible things that God has done. Now, I'm not saying that God needs man, people, to, to protect his reputation, but he certainly uses us in that sense. That's, that's why he chose Israel in the first place, to be a, a witness to all of the other nations of who he is. I wonder what the cable news stories of the day would have been. God leaves king and his army high and dry. Maybe that would be the headline of one of the newspapers. Probably the liberal one, I'm sure. Giant out yells army of God or Philistines and Israelites stand off in the valley. You know, in our culture today, that stuff gets around the world like that. That last one actually right there, Phil, uh, Philistines and Israelites stand off in the valley. You could, you could put any of the number names in there right now, probably, for what they're experiencing today over there. You see, there's opposition to the people of God. People are thumbing their noses. And we see that in our culture today, don't we? People thumb their noses at God. They think it's not that big a deal. He doesn't exist. He's not that powerful. We don't need you, God. We got this handled. 
Um, and if you talk about him in, in any place public, it's like, <gasps> how dare you say his name? We shouldn't be talking about that here. Um, just this morning, I, I watched a quick little video that, that there were some people putting pressure on the A&E network to change or not show the show Duck Dynasty anymore. I would have been devastated. I love Duck Dynasty. Now, the first time I watched Duck Dynasty, I thought, oh, here we go. You know, it showed them sitting down and praying and in, in the name of Jesus. And I thought, oh, great. You know, yet another show that's going to going to say good things at, at one point about God and Jesus and then they're going to swear and they're going to tell off-color jokes and it's just going to be a terrible thing. It hasn't been that at all. They've been true to who they really are in, in real life. I mean, as much as you can live your real life in front of a camera, right? And, and one of, one of the, the guys on Duck Dynasty said, look, we love our guns and we love our God and that's who we are. And if you don't want that, then you can't have us. And, and you will be happy to know that they have been signed a contract for the next season of Duck Dynasty, so hooray, hooray for those guys. But people complain. And they, 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 they pose an affront. They oppose God. And they oppose the people of God. And the question in, is, in the middle of our life, how, how are we going to respond to that? What is our reaction to that? Now, in our event in history today, we see that God is still working in the details of life. See, Jesse has eight sons, David of which is the youngest. Now, three of those oldest sons went off to fight the Philistines with Saul. So Jesse has five sons at home, and Jesse gets this idea that he wants to report about how his older sons are doing. So he puts together this care package. Of, of cheese and some other things to give to, the, to his older three boys and to their commander. And, and then he wants a report of how they're doing. And who does he send this care package to the front lines with? The youngest one. Why, why does he choose David? Why does Jesse choose David? I don't know the answer to that question. What I do know is, is I see in the details here that God is still working because David is the one that needed to be there. David is the one that needed to be there. Now, it could be that uh, it was because David already had a relationship with the king. You know, he's his personal musician. In verse 15, we see there it says that David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David's kind of doing double duty. He's, he's you know, he's, he's musician by night and shepherd by day or something like that. You know, he's playing for Saul and then he's also caring for the sheep. And David gets there and then we hear him finally speak. This is the first time we hear David speak in, in, the, in the writing of, of Scripture. He's, he's anointed king before this, but he doesn't speak. In verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David is the voice of faith right here. He is the voice of faith. There's two things that David points out. David's like, hey, let's do an assessment of this situation. Okay, first of all, David says this. Who does this man think he is? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? This man, along with the army he is serving, they're a bunch of pagans. They worship multiple gods, little g. 
that include Astarte, Baal, Dagon. And David is saying to those around him, who are these people that are causing disgrace to the nation of Israel? Really? Why is this happening? That was his first assessment. Why are we letting this happen? This just isn't right. The second thing is that he sees a problem with Saul and the Israelites. They aren't taking on this problem from the right starting place. They're starting from the wrong spot. See, Israel has complete and total access to what? Help me out a little bit. Don't fall asleep. What does Israel, or who does Israel have total and complete access to? God, not just God. What does it say in the text? The living God. He's the living God, David says. That is important right there. And David seems to be the only one in the area, the only one in the county, who realizes this very thing. That God is the living God and He could take care of this problem that we have. David is saying, what's the deal? What's the problem? We serve the living God. We serve Yahweh, the great I Am. Who has always been and who always will be. The one who brought us out of Israel, or brought us out of Egypt. The one who parted the Red Sea and the Jordan and destroyed cities in the Promised Land. Who gave us the Promised Land. He is the living God. Why is this uncircumcised Philistine a problem? He doesn't hold a candle to the living God. And oh, may we all hear David's voice of faith this morning. May we all be reminded that we are in the hands of the living God. He is still working today. He is still living today. We have, uh, we have closer historical evidence than what we are reading this morning. Albeit still a couple thousand years ago, Jesus Christ came to this planet, lived the perfect life, submitted Himself to crucifixion, was dead, was dead, and what happened? He rose again. He was raised on the third day. And today, He lives. We serve a living God. No doubt about it. There is no one that can oppose Him. He conquered sin and death. Now, when Jesus was crucified and He was in the grave, where were His disciples? They were hunkered down, hiding in their homes, weren't they? They were afraid. They were afraid. They were anxious. They didn't know what to do. And then what happened? The living God appeared before them. They saw Him with their very own eyes. You see, believing that someone is raised from the dead, that's hard to believe. It's kind of a tough sell for a lot of people. But here in the New Testament, we have evidence from eyewitnesses who saw Him walking the earth again. And we can trust what they say. He gave the disciples strength to carry on, even in their weaknesses that they were feeling. You see, as you think about the disciples and, and 
and the progress that they made in their life with Jesus, they failed a lot, didn't they? They lacked faith. They lacked trust in Jesus. When Jesus met before them and showed them that He was alive, and then they received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, there was this power that they were living their life with that, that gave them the strength to hold on to the truth of who Jesus Christ was to their death. To their death. It didn't matter. It wasn't simply pressure at work. It wasn't simply pressure in the face of a hard thing in their life, a, a health issue or, or a broken relationship. It was unto death and they were able to do it. Because they sought first His kingdom. Jesus says this in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. We can hold on to that promise. We can trust that. There is no doubt in David's mind that God, the living God, can handle the situation that he is standing before. So we, so we have an affront to faith. Then we hear the voice of faith. Next, David reflects on one of the reasons he has the faith that he does. I mentioned a few pieces of history already, but his strong faith is due in part to his past experience with God. Strong faith because of past experience. David, David is ready to head into the valley to face Goliath, but Saul isn't so sure, is he? Saul's like, dude, you're, you're 15 years old. Really? You think you could take this seasoned veteran of a warrior? And David's probably thinking, thinking to himself right there, no, absolutely not, I don't think I can take him. Saul says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine in verse 33 and fight him. Now again, Saul, Saul is just thinking to himself, he's too small. If, if none of us can fight, if none of us can have the strength to fight this uh, big guy, how could he have that strength? And in verse 34, uh, we see that David says this to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, David, even in his telling this story, knows that it wasn't him that killed the lion. It wasn't him that killed the bear. Could you imagine David um, standing there before a bear or a lion? Grabbing it by the hair, and what's he going to do with it? What would you do with it? I don't know. They say to poke him in the eyes. Okay, that's not going to kill him. It's just going to tick him off, right? David killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands, and he knows from that experience that it wasn't him. That it had to be the empowerment of the living God. So David's saying, I've seen this before. I've seen God work in my life, and God is going to work right here and right now. Because he trusts in the Lord to give him strength. Now David is starting with the right starting point, isn't he? The nation of Israel and, and Saul, they're not. They're looking at their own weakness against him. They're looking at David thinking, well, he's only 15 years old. David's not dwelling on that. 
David's not dwelling on the fact that he doesn't have experience in fighting uh, nine and a half foot tall men. He's not dwelling on the fact that he's the youngest boy in his family. Sometimes us younger children, we think, ah, I'm, just, I'm just not much. No, he's focused on the living God. He's seen him work in the past and he's ready for, to see him work here. So once again, as I have each week so far, I want to remind us that this event in history that we're reading today is not about David. It's not about Goliath. It's not even about Saul and the army. Who is it about? It's about the living God. It's about the living God. It's not for David's benefit. It's to honor God. It's about the adequacy of God in Israel's weakness. In, in David's weakness, it's, it's all about the adequacy of God. Not about those who are participating in the actual events. Who are struggling in them. In the opposition to God that we face ourselves. It's not about us. It doesn't matter what it is. I know there are many, many, many difficult things represented in here this morning. I know there are kids here who are ridiculed at school because not only do you believe in Jesus and do you serve Him, but you're not afraid to tell people that you do. You're ridiculed for that. There are adults that are ridiculed for that at work. Maybe, maybe you're, you have fear and, and anxiety in your life because there's been a death in the family. Or maybe there's somebody that's, that's extremely sick and dying in your family. And there's fear. And you're not sure what to do. Maybe you yourself have a condition that won't go away. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a broken relationship with your mother. Now, some of you have heard this before. But I want to tell you, uh, many of you have not. I want to tell you a little bit about my mother. Um, my mother was one of the most doting moms on the planet. You may think you're doting. My mom could ten times you, I'm sure. Um, and, and let me just tell you a couple stories. When I was 16 years old, my mom shows up at my high school with a birthday cake, stands in the front of the lunch line, and feeds every student in the high school a piece of birthday cake. On my 16th birthday, I wanted to crawl under a table. I hated that. You know, at that age, I, my mom embarrassed me. I didn't want to be around my mother. She, she had a really high-pitched laugh. Um, in fact, if you ever got lost in a department store, you just waited until somebody said something funny, and then you just zoned in on that noise wherever she was laughing. I mean, that, that was my mom. I was the only college student that I know of their freshman year who had matching curtains and bedspread on my dorm room bed. I'm serious. This is not a story. Now, at that point of time in my life, I told people that I had matching curtains and bedspread. I didn't hide from that. Because by that time, I had realized how much my mom loved me. And how much all of those things that she did that really embarrassed me, she did because she loved me and cared for me. And wanted what's best for me. And we all, I think, go through some of those times. Well, two years, it would have been my junior year, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. She had a double mastectomy. She went through chemo. She went through radiation. And, and 
And after lots of prayer, we were sure and told that, you know, the cancer was gone. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, um, later that year, my mom started having some pain in her chest. And the doctors at first said, well, it's, it's, it's arthritis. Um, I'm not sure how you could have arthritis in your chest. But anyway, that's what I, this is what I remember. Um, well, come to find out, it wasn't arthritis at all. Um, and it wasn't but a short time later uh, when I was a freshman in college uh, in February of my first year that my mom died. She lost the battle to cancer. Now, for us, in that period of time, uh, cancer was the giant that we were facing. Cancer was this thing that was opposing us as a family. You know, and, and as I think about that, Satan, uh, I, I don't believe that God caused my mom to have cancer. Okay? Um, the sin in this world is what causes disease and sickness. Um, that's what, uh, it's the breaking down of, of our world and of creation. That's where the cancer came from. But for whatever reason, God didn't answer our prayers in the way that we had hoped that He would. We had tons of people praying that mom would be healed, and God didn't heal her. Now, uh, what Satan meant for bad, God can take and make all things good for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Well, in Psalm 116, I was in my dorm room, sleeping that first three or four months after my mom died. I slept and went to class and came back and went back to bed and slept and went to class. That's what I did. And one of the elders of the church that I grew up in called me on the phone one day and he said, how you doing? You know, I just want to check in. He said, I have this verse I want you to read. He said, I want you to look it up. It's Psalm 116, verse 15. And this is what it says. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And when I heard that verse, um, it, it warmed my heart. It warmed my heart. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And if you read through that psalm, you see David himself going through a pretty tough struggle. The cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave. I called out on the Lord, O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious. He cares. We can hold on to that. Even in these times when the world seems to be falling in around us, which is, the, which is what it seemed like for Saul and the Israelite army. In their lack of faith, they didn't, think, they didn't see any way out of this. All they saw was, was bondage again to another people group. And David, with the voice of faith, says, wait a minute, you're forgetting something. You're starting from the wrong place. You need to start from the place that we serve the living God. And that's what he's reminding us of this morning. Now, I didn't get upset with God. I wasn't angry. I had some severe grief and some... Uh, to get through some stuff that happened because of losing my mother, yes. But I didn't blame God. I, didn't, I wasn't angry. Uh, 
Now, Pastor Ty in, in Second Look this week, and, and if you don't know, Second Look, again, is a video that you can go to on our church website, northhillsbaptist.net. It's under the Second Look tab. And, and each week, Pastor Ty um, challenges us with a different look, uh, the look at the, the sermon on Sunday from a different angle to, to help us make it more of a part of our life instead of just coming here on Sunday morning and hearing a message and then it, it not really sinking in. He, he's, he's trying to help us sink it in. And this week he's, he's looking at something that, that's going to be a bit challenging. This week's second look um, is going to talk further about what happens when God doesn't answer the way that we think he should answer. What, what happens um, or, or the way that we pray or another way to think about it. Another way to think about it is this. What if the giant doesn't fall? What if the giant doesn't fall? Check it out, northhillsbaptist.net. The final thing I see in our passage this morning is this. The victory of the living God. The victory of the living God. Now, we all know what happens, right? Reverberating throughout the valley is this huge thud of a nine-foot, nine-inch man falling to the ground. And David, without even his own sword, runs up and grabs um, Goliath's sword and wields it and cuts his head off. And of course, what happens? The Philistines submit themselves voluntarily to the Israelites, right? No, they run like crazy. And the Israelites run after them. All of a sudden, the army of God has what? This super powerful surge of confidence and energy and strength. Why? Because they just saw an action of the living God. There is no way David could have killed that, could have killed giant, uh, Goliath in his own strength. It's not possible. But he does. Remember how we've pointed out week after week that what we see in Scripture is so little about the men and women and so much about God and His plan of redemption. It's still going on. We've been calling it the scarlet thread. It's right here again. David said to the Philistine in verse 45, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied. And in verse 47, he says, All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. And that's exactly what happens. David wasn't successful because he was brave. David wasn't successful because he was a good shot with a slingshot. David wasn't successful because of his courage or his confidence. David was successful because he served the living God. It's about the power of God in our weakness. That's what we hear in the story of David this morning. It's not formulaic. There are too many circumstances in life. God's working in too many different ways for us to say, well, if you do this, then this will happen automatically. If we would just grab up the proverbial five stones in the slingshot, then, then we will conquer. No, the point is we trust in the Lord, period. And He will do the rest. We serve a living God, and God is adequate in our weakness. Jesus said this very thing to Paul when he was struggling with something in his own life. Look up here, 2 Corinthians 12, 
9 and 10. Write that in your notes, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And, and go back this week and read the, the whole chapter of 12. But he, Jesus, said to me, Paul says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Our strength doesn't come from our courage. Our strength doesn't come from our boldness. Our strength comes from the living God. That's where our strength comes from. Our ability to conquer trouble that lies before us is because we put our complete and total trust in Jesus Christ. Let's remember that this week. Paul says it another way in Galatians 2, 20 and 21. I believe this is your memory verse for the week. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says... I live by faith in what? The Son of God. I live by faith in the living God. That's how we can live. That's how we can conquer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that each one of us, as we navigate the journey of our lives and the process of our discipleship and relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to have the faith or to recognize that, that no matter what it is that's before us, opposition to you, opposition to us because of you, hardship in our life, oh Lord, may we, may we put our strength in you, the living God. Not in ourselves, not in the ways of man, but Lord, help us. Help us to rely on you. Give us strength. Now, Lord, we want to worship you with this final song. We want to declare how powerful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to take up our morning offering. And this is an opportunity for those who call North Hills their home to support our ministry here and around the world. And as the offering plate goes around, I'm going to invite everyone to stand to their feet. And if you would, please drop those connect cards into the plate as it, as it goes by. Let's just uh, worship our King together. How great is our God. Let's start by singing the splendor of a King. Think about these words as we're singing. The splendor of
Oh uh-huh. 